There have been two focuses that we've wanted to uh, turn our attention to in this series. The first one is, we always want to go to God's Word and ask the question, how did the people of God respond to the commands uh, that God had called them to through the person of Jesus Christ, through the writing of the prophets and the apostles? How did they live life? How did they go through the good times and the bad times? And the book of Acts helps us to understand, how did the church operate? How did the church go from being this small ragtag group of people to a movement that would change the world and is even changing the world today. What did they do? What were the things that were important to them? What did they make sure that they didn't miss out on week in and week out? But the second part of the thing that we, the series we want to learn from is to learn that the book of Acts isn't finished. There's still work to be done. As long as we have shooting rampages going on in our streets, as long as we have uh, children being uh, put to death through the sin of abortion, as we see uh, brothers and sisters fighting and families broken and marriages being torn apart, we know that the book of Acts isn't done because people need to find their Savior. And they need to be told by you and I, followers of Jesus Christ, what it means to be a disciple and what it means to experience the everlasting grace of Jesus Christ. And so that's why we've entitled it Unfinished. Jesus' work was done on the cross, and we can stand secure in his completed work. But the work of sharing the gospel to a lost generation in a lost world is left unfinished. We have unfinished work in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our nation, and in the world. And God has called Village Bible Church, along with many, many other local churches, to take up that mantle and serve God in this generation for his glory and his namesake. But this morning we come to a passage, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. It's a, it's a uh, set of verses that I've taught on in my 15 years of ministry here, I think two or three other times. It's a famous passage of scripture. It's a scripture that many of you are well aware of and probably can recite uh, by rote. It's a passage of scripture that tells us what were the key characteristics of that healthy and vibrant church that was birthed on the day of Pentecost. What were they doing? What were the programs? What were the uh, leadership like that allowed them to see that explosive growth and that intimacy of a community? Uh, So we always look to the marks of the healthy church. And I have taught on that. And if you want to know what some of the marks of a healthy church are, you can go to our website and listen to a couple of the sermons that were preached on this particular text. But I want you to know, I've been thinking about, is there something in this text that maybe I've missed over my years of studying it? And I found a word that I don't think I've spent much time on, a word that that maybe is uh, probably pivotal to all that was going on. We talk about the apostles' teaching, which we'll read about, and the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayer. And we'll talk about those things today. But all of that, if you will, is the door But the hinge of that door is one word in our text. It's the word devoted. And I want to focus our time and attention this morning on the word devoted. You see, that word is a word that has lost a lot of its meaning. And what we're going to find out today as we read this text is that this word has great importance to it. But before we do, let's read the text that we have before us. And let's see what God's word has to say. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. The word of the Lord tells us the following. 
And they became, and they were devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you would open our ears and open our hearts to your word this morning so that we may open our hearts and our hands to others and to you, that we might see what is before us and that we might recognize this morning that there is much that we can do with regards to our service and our living out for you. Lord, use this comparison between the first century church and the 21st century church to allow us to know uh, what your plan and your will is for your people. Lord, I pray that these characteristics and these truths that are found in our text would be true of us as a people and true of us as a congregation, that we might change lives, that we might serve you well in this generation. I ask for your blessing on the teaching and preaching of your word, the hearing and the applying of it. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Now more than ever, we live in a comparison generation. These comparisons can be helpful at times, but sometimes these comparisons can be downright devastating and destructive. Whether it's comparing our looks or our bank accounts or our possessions, or the accolades of our children, or family life. Comparisons seem to be taking over, and it's allowing people to be thrown into a devastating wake. As a pastor, comparisons are hard. As a pastor in the day of internet, and TV, and radio, it's far more difficult as a pastor to live up to the expectations that people have about you and your ministry. You see, back in the olden days... A pastor was the only sermon you heard. He was the only uh, person that probably you would hear teaching the Word of God. But today at our fingertips, you can hear the best and and brightest and, and most gifted of pastors. And there's this sense of comparison. Am I living up to where I should be? You see, one of the struggles that we can have as we compare ourselves in church is we can look at the church down the street. But the Bible says that we should not compare ourselves with one another, but what we should always do is compare ourselves with the written Word of God. And this morning, I want to do some comparing. I want to compare us as a church and us as followers of Jesus Christ, not to one another, not to the church down the street, but to the church that Luke writes about. It's a church that had gone through incredible changes. Picture with me, 120 people together, gathered in a room. They're enjoying sweet fellowship and intimacy uh, of community with one another. They have total access to one another. They know everyone's name. And they enjoy what it is to be a part of a small, tight-knit community. Only to have an awakening take place where the Spirit of God falls upon them 
It throws them out, if you will, into the streets. Peter preaches a message, and now this close-knit group of 120 now has turned into a group of 3,120. I want you to know that the first miracle in the book of Acts is not the beggar who is lame in Acts chapter 3, which we'll study next week. The first miracle is that there's no word of complaining that the church had gone from 120 to 3,000. Think about that for a moment. Think about how we feel when the church grows. How we feel when things aren't the same. I wonder if the people in that upper room said, hey, hey, wait a minute. Now we're too big. I, I don't know everybody's name. Now it's too big and, and, and I don't get the seats that I want when we gather together in the temple. I don't get that alone time that I used to get with Peter, James, and John. They're too busy doing things. There's no mention or innuendo of any complaining. In fact, the opposite is true. Awe was filled in the hearts of the people. They were blown away by what God was doing. And yet the life and the ministry of that first church had changed. Now what allowed them to have awe, even though their church was moving at a rapid pace? What was allowing them to experience the hand of God, even though their preferences maybe were having to be sacrificed? I will tell you this morning that we need to look at three things that are very important in this text. The first thing we need to do is an important one. And it's going to come across a little bit harsh, and I don't mean it to be, but it's going to come across as, as jarring, I hope. Because we have to, first of all, stop expecting, stop expecting the miraculous when we are content with the mediocre. We need to stop ex, uh, expecting the miraculous when we're content with the mediocre. Let me say today... That I was going to today, I don't know if you know, but thousands of people are running in the Chicago Marathon. And I'm here to make an announcement to you today. It's a great one. I'm going to run the marathon next year. Yeah, yeah, there you go. That's right. I'm going to miss church next year because I'm going to run the marathon, okay? And uh, here's what my training is going to be. I'm going to walk my block every day. That's what I'm going to do. And I'm not only thinking I'm going to finish the marathon, by the way, this is all for illustrative purposes, okay? <laughs> not only do I think I'm going to uh, run the marathon, I think I'm going to be competitive. And week in, week out, you guys are going to ask me, how's your training going? How are you doing? Are you ready for the marathon? I said, you betcha. I'm going to be right there with the Ethiopians and the, and the Kenyans and all those that always uh, win the race, right? I'm going to be there. You watch. You be there and watch me as I cross the finish line. Well, how's your training going? Good. I had a great walk around the block. Yeah, it's great. It was brisk. I was going about 1.2 miles per hour. Okay? Well, don't you going to, you going to do more? Nope. I'm just going to do that. I'm just going to walk around the block, and then when it's time, next Columbus Day weekend, I'm going to take my place at the starting line, and I'm going to run my heart out. And your response would be, you've got to be kidding me. To do that and only train in that way is foolish. It's never going to happen. Tim, just stop now. You're wasting your time because you're expecting the miraculous while being okay and content with the mediocre. There's no way you will accomplish what your dream is because you're unwilling to do the hard work of getting there. 
Can I tell you that the foolishness of that illustration is how many of us live the Christian life? We look at the book of Acts and we see tight-knit community. Love it. We see dynamic preaching and teaching. We say we love it. We look and we see all kinds of fellowship and all kinds of care and, and love being shown. We say, I want that. We see all kinds of, of miracles and signs and wonders. And you say, we want more of that. But we're rarely involved in the people of God. We're rarely involved in the Word of God. We struggle and we fight even when we need to pray. We're not a part of community like we need to. And when we're a part of community, we don't share our heart. We're, we're, we're uh, veiled in our responses. We're closed off. And yet what we say is, boy, I would sure like the book of Acts. Well, let me tell you something. When you expect something great and are unwilling to do the hard work that comes, living the Christian life like that, hoping for the book of Acts is like me wanting to run the marathon, only walking a block a day. It will never get there. And those that expect the miraculous amidst the mediocre are foolish. We're foolish. And some of us look with great love and admiration to the passage before us, and we say, how do we get there? Listen, we get there by the grace of God, and we get there by disciplining ourselves to do the things God has called us to. And they're neither easy, nor do they come quickly. A person running a marathon has to train. A person that's running a marathon has to reprioritize his life. A person that's going to run a marathon has to do the hard stuff, things I am absolutely unwilling to do. And quite frankly, some of us who call ourselves Christians want the dynamic Christian life and the dynamic Christian fellowship that I believe a church can have without putting in the hard work. And so we are here as a group of Christians expecting the miraculous while being content with the mediocre. And that's got to stop. Let's look at the early church. How did they deal with this? Were they mediocre and getting the miraculous? Absolutely not. I want you to notice the difference between the two churches that I want to talk about this morning. The two churches being the first century church in Acts and the 21st century church, us today, are the following. The first century church was devoted. Write that down. The first century church was devoted. As we look at the first century church, we see something very, very significant. It's the word devoted. Now I want to camp at this word for a little bit, because sometimes a good word becomes so commonplace, so rote, that it loses its meaning. Sometimes meaning changes from the original thought that was there, and the meaning of the word is lost. Or it becomes cliche, and I think this word devoted might be there. Some of you, at the very mention of the word devoted, uh, conjure up images of Olivia Newton-John and some sappy love song. You just made yourself old by laughing at that. For others, devoted may smack of an abusive relationship. Maybe an unpleasant connotation. A dreadful duty at the cost of one's happiness and health. But the word devoted in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they devoted themselves is an important word. Now, it's used twice in the text. In Acts 4, 22, we see it, devoted, black and white, clear as day. But we'll see it in verse 46 as well, where it says, and day by day, 
attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Now I want you to notice that phrase, and day by day, the idea there is also the word devoted. Every day they continued. Now let's talk about this for a moment. The first definition of the word devoted means to attach oneself to, to be faithful, to hold fast, to persevere. That's what verse 42 is. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to community, breaking of bread, and prayer. The second there, the second word use of devoted fleshes itself out with regards to time. They continued to meet together. Same word devoted. Now, this word devoted requires two things. Write this down. It requires, requires tenacity and time. Tenacity and time. When the Greeks would speak of devotion, there were two things you needed. Tenacity, perseverance, grit, and the time to allow that to happen. Tenacity that made you persevere. Tenacity that allowed you to endure. Tenacity that allowed you to hold fast, to not give up. And the time to watch it take place. It is not hard to be tenacious for a moment. This last week, uh, or two weeks ago, I'm sorry, two weeks ago, I had to have what was found to be a fourth wisdom tooth that I thought had been taken out. So that's why I was so wise all these years. Now, I'm still working with the office to find out why they charged me years ago for four wisdom teeth to be removed, and they're still pulling them out. Well, what happened is, is I was uh, in the process of getting the tooth pulled. I have an exposed nerve now. Very painful thing, okay? I hate dentists. I don't think anything of nice, nice things about dentists anymore. And I had to go, and, and they would deaden the spot, and I went in each and every day this last week to have them deaden uh, where the tooth was pulled, the cavity that now is, is left there. There's nothing, no tooth, it's gone. And I had to be tenacious, because for about 30 seconds, it hurt, but then relief would come. Now, if you were to think about it, that's not tenacity. That's enduring for a small moment. Tenacity is over time. Some of you are being tenacious and dealing with pains and sorrows and issues and relational strife and hardships. That's what it means to be tenacious over a long period of time. And so we have this group of people that have committed themselves, have devoted themselves to do the hard stuff for a long period of time. You see, one of the problems that we have in our world today as Christians is we are neither tenacious nor are we willing to give time. You would think we would be willing to give one or the other, but time we're not really, really willing to give, and tenacity we give up so quickly. Instead of working through the hard stuff and enduring the hard stuff and, and living out the hardships of life, we throw up our hands and we give up. Not true of the early church. They were tenacious and they were allowing themselves the time that it took for solid biblical ministry and growth to take place. That's the early church. They were devoted. But what about the 21st century church? How about us? I want you to notice this morning the 21st century church, in my opinion, is distracted. It's distracted. Instead of a singular devotion to the person and people of God, it is far, for far too many of us, 
church and the people of God and the things of God are a tag on of something we do. We suffer from spiritual ADD. There are things that distract us. What are they? Are they some heinous sin, some gross disobedience? No. For the people of God, the distractions are noble and good things. Things that God created for our good and for our enjoyment. But we have placed out of place the priorities that they need to be. And let me share some with you and maybe have you do some evaluating as I did some evaluating in my own study this week. How about our aspirations? We are distracted with our aspirations, our dreams, our, our wants, our desires. Uh, we, we spend so much time on looking into the crystal ball of our lives and saying, what if we did this or what if we did that? We do that with our homes. We do that with purchases. We do that with our vacations. We do that with new job opportunities. We become distracted with them. How about our advancements? Some of us are, are, are advancing in the workplace and, and we're dr- spending all times of time and putting in all times of energy. Why? To get to that next promotion, that next maybe pay increase, that next opportunity. And we fill ourselves with that. And I understand that as a person who runs a small business trying to hit that record sale, trying to make sure that you're advancing as a company. Some of us have allowed that to become a distraction instead of allowing ourselves to be devoted How about things like athletics? Things that always should be secondary. Academics. As important as good grades are. How about the arts? How about all kinds of activities? Every study that is being done right now tells us that the church in 20 years will have half the people in it. Not because they've given up on the faith, because they will be too busy to attend church on a regular basis. Every study, hands down, says half of you who are here today won't be here in 20 years because there will be something more important for you to do. Listen, that's not time and that's not tenacity, that's distraction. And you say, but it's important. It is important. But it seems as if as we look at the scriptures, we recognize that while the early church, they had a lot going on. Surely they had family, they had social obligations. Uh, remember, they had a lot of walking to do, right? They couldn't do what we can do with our cars and transportation. They had to work much longer hours than we had to. And as a result of that, they were tired and they were uh, filled with all kinds of, of things and excuses that they could have come up with. But it says they devoted themselves, whereas we find ourselves distracted. How does the first, how does 21st century deal with Christians who are so distracted? What are we to do? I want you to uh, turn your attention to the screens because I believe that a change is happening within churches. And the reason why the change is happening in churches is because instead of driving people and moving people to becoming devoted, we've come to now find ourselves dealing with a distracted group of people and we say, how do we get a group of distracted people to come and spend time with us? I'm going to ask a, a man from the Chicagoland area, a guy I respect a lot, his name is Sky Jathani, uh, to share with us on the screen. This will be about four minutes long, but I cannot in any way, shape, or form explain to you this movement in a better picture than what he does. So turn your attention to it, and I think it will change the way you look at how we do church. 
let me begin with some history. In the first half of the 20th century, ocean liners were how most people traveled between Europe and America. We often think of the glamorous first-class passengers enjoying these floating palaces, but in truth, ocean liners served a very practical function. They moved people and cargo from point A to point B. That's why they were called liners. But the glory days of the ocean liners began to fade in 1953 when a comet roared across the Atlantic. The De Havilland Comet was the first commercial jetliner. The fastest ocean liners took about six days to cross the Atlantic, but a jet could do it in just six hours. And overnight, the vast ocean became just the pond. Many thought passenger shipping would never recover, but they were wrong because some innovative ship owners thought of a new way for their fleets to make money. Cruises. Rather than the practical purpose of moving people from one point to another, cruises were intended for fun, and they usually sailed in a circle, starting and ending in the same port. This fundamentally changed the purpose of the ship. Before, a ship was a, a form of transportation, but with cruises, the ship became the destination. That's why modern cruise ships dwarf the old ocean liners. They have to cram so many features on board to attract passengers. Today, megaships have parks, carousels, water slides. Whatever these things are, ice skating, roller skating, bumper cars, simulated surfing, simulated skydiving, simulated families, even bowling lanes. I mean, seriously, who goes bowling on a cruise ship? All of this happened because ships went from being vehicles to being destinations. So, what does all this have to do with the church? Well, like ocean liners, for centuries churches had a simple purpose: they gathered people together and transported them into communion with God. That was it. But in the 1960s. Changes in our culture started drawing young people away from the church. Baby boomers weren't that interested in connecting with God anymore, and small, simple churches just couldn't compete with the attraction of shopping malls and multiplexes and rock concerts. But some innovative pastors came along with a new idea: if people no longer felt the need to connect with God, then perhaps something else would draw them into the church: the need for community or entertainment or help with their families. In other words. Rather than making the church a vehicle for connecting with God, they decided to make the church a destination in itself. They even invented a new word. We used to talk about Christians and non-Christians, or believers and non-believers, but starting in the 1970s, we began talking about the unchurched. And since then, the number of megachurches has exploded, while the actual number of people attending church has declined. In order to attract people, just like cruise ships, churches have had to get bigger and bigger with more and more features. We now think it's completely normal for churches to include. Coffee shops, bookstores, food courts, recreation centers, water parks, children's ministries packed with Xboxes and climbing walls, aquariums, and yes, there are even churches with bowling alleys. Seriously, who bowls at church? Now, don't get me wrong. This has all been done with the very best of intentions, and in some cases, those intentions actually work. I'm sure there are people who have entered a church because it has a great CrossFit program and actually found Jesus there, and that's great. But we need to remember that a huge church can survive if you don't find God there, but it can't survive if you don't fund its programs. And that brings us back to the real reason you may be uneasy about church. A lot of us aren't going to church for the climbing wall or for the laser show or the dancing fountains. We're going because we want to meet God, but over time, if we don't find Him there, we give up. We're looking for a simple ocean liner to take us into communion with God, but instead we find a sea of entertaining cruise ships that sometimes don't take us anywhere at all. The Barna organization has found that the number one reason millennials go to church is to be closer to God, but it's also the number one reason they leave the church. Maybe it's time for the church to just be the church again. Maybe it doesn't have to be a rec center or a shopping mall or even a bowling alley. 
Maybe people aren't giving up on the church because our culture has moved away from God. Maybe it's because the church has. Powerful words. Words that have had me thinking for some time as a pastor of a church. And and so we've got a contrast that we've got to work with. We live in a culture where bigger is better. We are in a culture where we look at churches and say, that church is doing something because of the extravagant things that are going on maybe within the building. But then if we're faithful to the scriptures, we open the word of God and we come to a passage like this today. And in Acts 2, 42 through 47, as we're going to now kind of dig into what they were doing, I want you to see the things that are left out the things that are omitted from the ministry that was going on. Notice, no world-class facility. Nothing in the text talks about it. It says they met in the temples. They were in borrowed space, a space that used to be used for their Jewish worship. Uh, there's no talk of a flashiness of their pastors or the great, uh, uh, if you will, um, uh, image that they personify or the amount of people that follow them on Twitter. They were Peter and James and John and the apostles, a ragtag group of people used by God to do powerful things. What about world-class programs? There's no talk of the awesome children's ministry or the great youth group or, or any of that. And so we have this contrast or this comparison. Are we going to go for what culture tells us the church is going to be? Or are we going to go where Scripture calls the church to be? As faithful followers of Jesus Christ, I think it is far better for us to go to the Scriptures. And notice that when we go to the Scriptures, we see the ministries that drove their movement. That's number two. See the ministries that drove their movement. Was it an ocean liner or was it a cruise ship in Acts chapter 2? Notice what Acts chapter 2 tells us. We see a church that is quite simple. They loved certain things. Number one, they loved hearing God's word. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now picture with me that next week you come into the church and we've experienced in a seven-day time frame... A growth of 3,000 people. Parking is going to be an issue. In fact, uh, we're going to be backed up on Route 47. Getting in here is going to be a problem. You're probably, because most of you show up around 9 o'clock, it's going to be too late. Because the 3,000 will have known to have gone here a little bit early. So you're not going to find a seat next week. Uh, the way that we do ministry is going to change dramatically. You're going to have to grow smaller because you've grown bigger. And so there's going to be a lot of dynamics that are going to change within that. And while that may be exciting to some, that would be a nightmare to your pastor and elders. What in the world are we going to do with these 3,000 converts? These people that have been changed by the inner working of the Holy Spirit, what are we going to do? What did they do? They sat the people down and they taught the scriptures. Where did they learn this model? From Jesus. Jesus, as we learn when he's teaching the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, starting with Moses and the prophets, he taught them all the scriptures had to say about him and why he came and what God's purpose of redemption was all about. What do we need to be doing as a church? We need to be devoting ourselves the time and the tenacity to studying God's Word. Now, we live in a generation 
Listen, we live in a generation, the Bible says in the last days, people will give up the listening to sound doctrine. And they will turn their attention, there's the tenacity, they'll turn their attention to find teachers that will tickle their itching ears. That will turn them away because they've got great stories or great illustrations or, or self-help ideas. And instead of opening the Word of God and being tenacious and devoted to it, we turn our attention to listening to a man jabber on about what he thinks will make your life better. Listen, don't ever allow yourself, as flowing as the words may come, as flowery as they may sound, don't ever come to listen to a man. Always come to listen to God. Listen for Him. And when you know when a man is teaching the Word of God, you know then he is preaching Christ, not himself. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Let me encourage you with something. I am blown away by your tenacity and the time you give to the teaching of God's Word, not only in Sunday mornings, but also in your small groups, in our youth ministries, in our children's ministries, it is central. Bible is truly our middle name. And that shouldn't change. And we need to pray that those who come beyond us and behind us would never be able to give up that tenacity or give up that time of the hard work that teaching God's Word is all about. Notice they loved hearing God's Word. Notice number two, they loved... Uh, talking with God. So they loved hearing God's Word taught, and then they loved talking with God. It says that they were devoted to prayers. Circle that word prayers, because that's an important word. It's not they just were devoted to praying, but they devoted themselves to prayers. That, that word prayers is in the plural, because it's all kinds of prayers. And so they loved praying by themselves. They loved praying in, in, in small groups. They loved praying in, in larger corporate settings. They loved casual prayers. They loved formal prayers. They loved all kinds of prayers. Why? Because they recognized and they would continue to recognize that when they got on their knees and they prayed, God showed up and did awesome things. And we're going to see that over and over again. The disciples are in trouble. They prayed. Good things were happening. They prayed. God was using the gospel to change lives. They prayed. And they prayed all different kinds of prayers. And we need to be a people who love to talk with God because we know we have a God who hears and answers prayer. They loved hearing the Word of God taught. They loved talking with God. Notice number three, they loved spending time together. They were devoted to fellowship. That word, for those who have been around the church, that's the one Greek word you know, right? Fellowship, koinonia. All right, now we're all very versed in our koine for, uh, Greek. This Greek word, koinonia, means common. There was community, common unity to be open in the church and, and honest about who you are but what with other people. Listen, my closest friends, friends they're important. know Number who one, I am. They, have they don't just know hearts. the things I tell them. They that know they much deeper things about me. They know my struggles. They, they know my fears. They know my insecurities. They know the things that I need to work on. They know all my temptations. And I have to be willing, if I want to find victory in this life, 
So let that's, me just be willing to someone allow right now, people maybe into in that. Group, are we sharing our hearts saying, you know, I, with one I another? Love to see that kind of Number two, in, in my small he said, group, he goes on, church, Luke says, and they share not only their hearts, but their homes with one another. It says that they would gather in one another's homes, they would break bread. Verse 46, in their homes they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Are you willing to be the idea here is they shared will- hospitality. They opened their homes together. They ate together. They spent time together. They lived life together. Now here's the crazy thing. They lived in primitive settings. They lived in places where vacuum cleaners hadn't been invented. They lived in small areas, tight, confined spaces. Not the thousands upon thousands of square feet that we find ourselves in. Listen, we live in castles compared to the first century. And then that begs the question, if we live in such beautiful homes, with such spacious rooms, why are we never opening it up to the other people of God? Why are we so unhospitable, I don't want to spit it out there, unhospitable, When we have so many opportunities, God has blessed us with homes. God has blessed us with an abundance of food. And we use it for ourselves, never sharing it with others. One of the great things about small groups is small groups are designed, listen, they are designed to show you what the Christian life should be about. It's a picture, it's a lab of what Christian life is supposed to be. So we gather together, and on a so for us it's Tuesday night at our home, and we open our home, and we gather people together, and we study God's word, and we pray, and we fellowship together, and all of those things that happen on Tuesday night shouldn't only happen on Tuesday night in the Bedal home. Those things should be going on in Tim and Amanda's life each and every day. Tim and Amanda should be studying the word. Tim and Amanda should be praying. Tim and Amanda should be fellowshipping with others. Tim and Amanda should be opening their homes. Now, does that mean we become a Howard Johnson hotel? I think there's reason to believe that that's not the case. But when was the last time you opened your heart and then your home to another set of Christians or just another Christian couple to show them love, to share a meal together and enjoy the fellowship of one another. If we want to be the first century church, not distracted, but devoted, our homes have to be a part of it. We have to be willing to do it. Notice the third thing that they did. They opened their hands, they opened their hearts, and I want you to notice they opened their, I'm sorry, their hearts and their homes and then their hands. Notice it says that they loved giving up their treasures. They loved giving up their treasures. The text tells us that they had all things in common and selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now the situation in first century Jerusalem is a little bit different. Remember that people are together, they're pilgrims, if you remember, for this festival. And they've come to Jerusalem for this harvest festival to pay homage to God and, and to sacrifice. And while they're in Jerusalem, an outburst takes place where the disciples are at, and it feeds out into the streets. 
And they start hearing the gospel being preached in their own language. And they hear that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, that he was crucified, buried, and now that he's risen from the dead. And now God is pouring out his spirit on all people. And so they've hung around for a little while. They've come to know Jesus, but before they head home, before they go back to where they're at, they need to learn about this Jesus and grow in their relationship with Jesus. And so that would create a problem. Number one, they would need a place to stay. Number two, they would need money. Number three, they would need food. And so the people of God got together and says, what can we do for one another to provide for each other? Now, we are given the task as Christians to provide for one another as well. We need to be willing to share with open hands the needs that happen amongst the people of God. Now, remember that the family is the number one group of people that has been designated by God to provide for the needs of itself. So I cannot be lazy, the Bible says, and then demand that you guys take care of me. I need to work, I need to provide for the Badal family, but when the Badal family falls on hard times, it is the job of the Christians around us to support and help the family until they can get back on their feet. And we need to be doing that for one another. They open their hearts, they open their homes, and they open their hands. Now notice, they were devoted to this. They were tenacious about it, and they allowed their time to be filled with it. Notice finally we see that as we look to this, we have to ask some questions. What are the questions that we need to ask? What church best describes you? What Christian? Are you an Acts 2 Christian devoted with time and tenacity? Are we a church that is devoting ourselves to the important things? Or are we a distracted church filled with distracted people? Well, that leads me to one final point, and we'll close it out, and that is we've got to start making some changes. We've got to start making some changes. Write this down in your outlines, that we need to start making the changes so that we can fulfill Christ's mission. God's got a plan for us. God's got a purpose for this church. And I can assure you, it is not entertainment. Now, entertainment isn't wrong, but that's not what God, God created us or has us existing in this world as the church. So we need to compare ourselves to the book of Acts and ask the question, are we living out, are we doing the things that Christ has called us to? Now a couple of things that we need to think about. Number one, we need to recognize the shortcomings of our modern approach. We need to recognize the shortcomings of our modern approach to church. There's a lot to be encouraged about, about the church of the 21st century. But there are some things that have become cultural that are absent from Acts chapter 2. Number one, the church in the 21st century is far more individualistic than it ever was in the book of Acts. We are about us. We are the consumers. It's about what we're doing or what we want. We don't live in dependency, nor do we desire to live out Christianity with others. And so that's a difference, and that's a shortcoming that we have. We can't live out what the Scriptures say by being individualistic Christians. Number two, we choose to enter churches and stay in churches for very different reasons than we see in the New Testament. And so we come and we evaluate churches based on their building, based on their programs, based on what they can do for me. 
instead of seemingly how the New Testament church evaluated churches. Was the word being taught? Were they people of prayer? Were they people that were wanting to move from point A to point B in their spiritual journey growing closer and closer to God? We pick and choose whether we stay in churches or not based on preferences, not the precepts of Scripture. That's a second shortcoming that's a part of our world today. Number three, far too much of the Christian life has become optional. We have at some point believed that the Bible is filled with suggestions, not commands. And so when the Bible says, hey, don't forget to assemble together, we say, you know what, but that doesn't mean me. I can omit that. When it says bear with one another burdens, well, that doesn't mean me. That's someone else. When it means to spur one another on towards love and good deeds, that's not written to me. It's written to somebody else. And we've created these options. And because of that, there is a take it or leave it approach to ministry. Now, for some of us, we don't even recognize it because far too long we're the frog in the perpetual kettle. We don't know it until it's too late. We need to recognize some of the shortcomings of how the 21st century church does church and their shortcomings. Number two, we need to repent of being lukewarm. We need to repent of being lukewarm. It tells us in the passage that they were baptized. In verse 40, uh, 38 and 40, they were baptized. And when we talk about being baptized, they, they immerse themselves into Christ and all that he was doing. Now, I want you to notice in the first century, when you baptized yourself from Judaism into Christianity... When you went under and you came out, your old friends, your family that were Jewish would now despise you for your decision. It wasn't where you would go into the water and everybody would clap and this is great and this is awesome. There would be people in your family and your friends or maybe your boss was there and said, hey, you're a part of that new cult group called Christianity. You've lost your job. And so they were willing... When it says they were baptized, they were giving up their old way of life and all the opportunities and all the the privileges that came with it, they immersed themselves now into a world of persecution and hostility. We live comfortably in the 21st century. Another church that the Bible talks about is the church of Laodicea in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. In the church of Laodicea, Jesus says, you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm. I wish you'd be one or the other. Cold water you can use, hot water you can use, but something in the middle, it's good for nothing. And some of us are so comfortable in the middle, so comfortable in where we're at. We are good for nothing. And we need to repent. We need to say to God, I'm sorry. I'm no longer going to live this way. Christianity isn't just going to be a label that I affix to myself, but Christianity is going to become the person and work of Jesus Christ living itself out dramatically in one's life. In my life. Number three, it probably means reprioritizing. Think about the people in the church. Life as they know it had changed. They had come for a festival. Now everything that they knew, their worldview had changed. The priorities had changed. 
They now were daily, it says, each and every day worshiping Jesus. You think their priorities changed? Do you think their schedules changed? They were devoted to spending time with Jesus and his followers. Some of us this morning need to ask some hard questions. And you may say, well, Tim, maybe you're being a bit legalistic and and I'm willing to run the risk of that. But surely some of us have to ask the question this morning. If Christ is my all in all, why does he so often get my seconds? If Jesus is everything to me, then why do I give nothing of my time, talents, treasure, and testimony? If I announce and tell people the joy that I have looking forward to spending eternity with Jesus and his people, why do I struggle to hear his word taught or to be with his people even one time a week? Hard questions that have to be answered by us all. And we have to be men and women enough to make the needed changes so that we may honor God in all that we say and do. Notice two more things. Rejoicing in what God is doing. It says there was awe, the text tells us. They were praising God and having the favor with all people. They had glad and and generous hearts. There was a sense that God was doing something Great. And I want you to know this morning that as I look at the church, there's always things we can be doing better. But I would be remiss not to tell you that in a lot of ways, God is doing great things in our church. Right now, we've experienced more baptisms, over 30 baptisms this year, than we've ever experienced in a single year in the history of the church. That's awesome. Praise God, right? Yeah. Okay. We're seeing people grow in their relationships with Jesus Christ. We are hearing from people that are being changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're having an effect in the world. We're having an effect in the school system of, of Caneland right now. We got opportunities for our pastors to go into the lunches of our, of our public school system and have an impact. They invite us to be a part of that. We are having an effect in the world. But there's still much to be done. Our work is left unfinished. But let's rejoice. Let's have a sense of awe of what God is doing in our midst. Because when that awe comes, something will take place. We will reach out to others. Write that down and we'll close. We will reach out to others. When there is something awe-inspiring taking place in the people of God, we will have no choice but to start reaching out to our neighbors, to our friends, to our co-workers. And that's something in the days to come that we need to do a better job with at Village Bible Church. One of the things we were so encouraged last week was uh, we had a thousand people come to the barn bash. But one question we had was, how many of us invited our unsaved neighbors and friends and co-workers to be a part of that awesome night, to introduce them to church? And we need to do as leaders a better job of communicating, here's a great opportunity for you to bring your friend. Here are tools that you can use to invite your friend. Here are opportunities before you that will create a road uh, map for how you can reach your neighbors and friends and loved ones with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, and only then, might we see what is articulated in verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. How awesome would it be that every week we come into this place 
Every week we say, just say, just a quick report, another seven people in the kingdom. Every week, another one. And you guys come up and say, hey, can I share? My neighbor came to know Jesus. My coworker came to know Jesus. That individual who came into the church last week for the first time came to know Jesus. We want to be that lighthouse to the world. But in order to do it, we need to stop entertaining and we need to start disciplining ourselves, devoting ourselves with the time and the tenacity it takes to serve God. Here's the great truth, and let me close with this. No church is perfect. It never will be. But one thing that we know is when we devote ourselves to these things, God says, when we rely on His Spirit, great things can take place. And it is my belief that as we continue to do this in greater measure, we will glorify God, and we will see God bring more and more people into the kingdom of God. And that, my friends, is what God created us for.